Would you be able to imagine Avondale Memorial Church with a no-watch policy on the door? <laughs> that will be the day. And uh, this coming Monday now, we've got a business meeting, so uh, maybe we'll put it on the agenda. Uh, but the Apostolic Church, they did not have a watch. So uh, I hope Avondale Memorial Church will become an apostolic church from the first century. Uh, don't be afraid, I'm not going to uh, go over time too too much. But uh, I was just sitting down and, and looking at us as a congregation. And I'm in spite of the fact that in the 21st century, the hearts of men and women, young and old, are still drawn to a place of worship. You know, we've got our dear brothers and sisters that are watching us from, uh, from their homes. They wish they could be here, but they cannot be due to health or other reasons. But it's interesting to know that in this culture, we still want to leave the comfort of our homes and come together in worship. Because there is something about the body of Christ when we do this together. And God wants us to keep on doing this. And the Bible in the book of Hebrews encourages us not to forsake assembling together in the body of Christ. This morning we'll be tackling an uh, interesting topic in my uh, opinion. The title is, Is God a Moral Monster? And um, I hope that we have visitors today. I hope there's someone here for the first time. That it is my prayer that if you are a regular church member or a visitor, that you will understand uh, better God's character and you'll have a better understanding of God's will for your life and His plan in our lives. Some of you might be aware that books have been written about God's character, especially His actions in the Old Testament. And he's been described by various atheist authors, and I quote, God is a bully, a murderer, and a cosmic child abuser. And the list of various descriptions continues if you do care and take the time to read what uh, world-renowned atheist scholars are saying about God, especially his description in the Old Testament. The list of accusations continues in that God is accused of being arrogant and jealous. He punishes people too harshly. He is guilty of ethnic cleansing. He oppresses women, endorses slavery, and he causes violence. And these people are wondering, how on earth is it possible for a group of people like us to come together at least once a week and worship a God that endorses such things, or a God that is described in the Old Testament in, in such manner. Some of you might be aware of this world-renowned atheist author, Richard Dawkins. In 2006, he published a book entitled, The God Delusion. Uh, and in that book, he made a couple of statements regarding God's character. And I'd like to share some of them with you. I'm not going to read the whole paragraph because I cannot... Read it. I do not feel comfortable. But I'll start the paragraph for you. Richard Dawkins, in this book published in 2006, The God Delusion, he said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, controlled freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, and the list goes on. I wish to stop here. But you've got the words on the screen and you can get an idea 
of how people like Richard Dawkins understand God, especially his actions in the Old Testament. And if we take a moment to be honest with ourselves and we try to think of others that are maybe new into the Christian faith, a superficial reading of the Old Testament causes problems in your heart. Even for some Christians to go through the Old Testament and understand God's actions, you sort of wonder, what is God up to in this passage? It's challenging, you don't have questions, you choose to ignore it, and you try to move on, but you may not have the answer, or you do, which is great. But, you know, this whole tension about the description of God's action in the Old Testament is not something new. In the second century, there was a fellow by the name of Marcion of Sinope. Marcion of Sinope. In the second century, he said that we, the believers, need to delete and completely remove the Old Testament. Saying that Jesus, when he came to earth, he came to describe God. But not the God of the Old Testament. He came to describe another God. And uh, he went on to say that some of the books in the New Testament can be kept, but they need to be edited. So after all his theories, of course, Marcion was considered to be a heretic. And uh, he was you know, asked to leave the church. But when you think of this situation... How can we speak sense into these accusations that are being addressed to God and especially to his actions? First of all, from a philosophical point of view, I'd like you to understand this statement. To say that God is evil or to say that God is a moral monster, one has to define morality first of all, in such a way that justifies the claim that you have made. In order to say that someone or something is evil, you need to justify and define morality in such a way that your statement has a strong foundation. You need a standard or an ideal for what is good and for what is evil. And with all due respect... The atheist writers who believe in evolution do not have an answer to morality. What meaningful standard can exist other than God for moral principles? Think about it. Apart from God, it's not possible to have truly objective morality. Labeling anything as good or as bad takes you directly to the notion that there must be a God who rules what is good and what is bad. A Christian author by the name of Paul Copen, studying the character of God in the Old Testament, his actions, and trying to answer some of the accusations brought against God by Richard Dawkins and other uh, atheist uh, uh, authors, made this statement. Despite Dawkins' moral outrage, his metaphysic disallows it. Now listen to his argument. Admitting that a universe full of electrons contains no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So Dawkins himself admits that this in, in this process of evolution, in this universe, we have no elements that help us understand what is good or what is evil. It is pitiless indifference. Indeed, science 
and this is quoted from Dawkins' book, science has no methods for deciding what is ethical. And my question is then, on what grounds do you say that God is a moral monster? If the world in which we're living does not have a ground for morality. Individuals and society decide. Naturalism does not have the metaphysical resources to move from valueless matter to value. On the other hand, Paul Copen says, Theism is immensely better equipped metaphysically to provide such a context. And still, the topic begs the question... How can we understand some of the most challenging actions of God in the Old Testament? How can we make sense of them? First of all, a very important principle is that we need to approach this topic, this, this, uh, this issue, with a humble heart. Understanding that we are limited human beings. That we, God's wisdom transcends our understanding. And at the same time, this morning I want to share very briefly with you four principles that I hope will help you understand God's actions in the Old Testament and help you answer the question, is God a moral monster in some of the situations you have described in the Old Testament? I'll present four principles, but please bear in mind, we are just scratching the surface here. Time does not allow us to go into depth. I just want to start the journey in your mind for you. And if you're looking for resources or extra material that you'd like to read or watch, I'm more than happy to talk to you and share some of my uh, resources because we've got a wealth of resources and uh, things that we can study in order to understand God's character. So moving into principles, I'd like to share with you principle number one. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. When we look at challenging passages in the Old Testament, when things do not make sense and you wonder, why did God do such a thing? It just doesn't reconcile in my mind. As you struggle with that issue, I would like you to to remember this first principle that says, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And this this verse I want to share with you comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And it says this, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying God revealed himself to the nations through the prophets. Has in these, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Principle number one is Jesus is the perfect revelation of, G- of, of, of God, of God the Father. As, as he was on, on earth with his disciples, with people around him, Jesus would often say to them, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us precisely that Jesus is the express image of God, of the same God that was present in the Old Testament times and God that is present in the New Testament times. Jesus, throughout his ministry, throughout his preaching, never distanced himself from the God of the Old Testament. 
he never did he make a statement even hinting that his character or his teachings are different from the character of God in the Old Testament. So here is the reality of the issue. We are struggling with some passages. And towards the end of my message, we're going to look at a passage in particular in, uh, in 1 Samuel. We are struggling to understand some of, some of God's actions. But what Hebrews tells us and what Jesus himself tells us is this. Understand God's actions in the Old Testament through the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Understand God's actions in the Old Testament through the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These are the lenses that we need to wear when we look at some of these challenging passages in the Bible because Jesus alone is the perfect revelation of God. The second principle I want to share with you very briefly because I want to spend more time on the fourth one. People say the Old Testament is challenging and it has all these descriptions about God that are hard to understand. I'd like to bring to you this morning that the New Testament contains challenging passages too. Right there in the book of Acts, you have uh, a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They were killed because of the divine judgment in their lives. And you've got the book of Revelation that is filled with God's wrath. It's filled with that lake of fire that will destroy the devil, the demons, and all those that choose to reject the love of God. And if you're honest with yourself, then you come to the conclusion, hang on a minute, it's not just the Old Testament that is challenging my faith regarding God's actions in, in earth and the way he's going to deal with sin and sinners, but the New Testament has challenging passages too, which means is that there could be some unity across the spectrum. There could be an overarching theme that God is willing for us to understand. Principle number three, in Old Testament, when we find some of the drastic decisions that God had made, a principle that may help us to understand is this, that God acts like a surgeon. No one chooses to go to a surgeon and have a surgery unless they really need it. Some of us really avoid that at all costs. But one principle for us to consider is that God acts like a surgeon. What do I mean by that? He cuts the infection. He cuts the infection in order to save the body. The saying that says, God loves the sinner and hates the sin, is biblically correct and can be backed up by both writings in the Old and the New Testament. But at times we place more emphasis on God loves the sinner, which is true, and it should be that way. But there's the reality that sometimes we ignore, and that is God hates sin. And God wants to deal with sin as a surgeon deals with cancer. He acts in order to remove it for the greater good. He acts in order to remove it that the body might be saved. Since God is the author of life... And he knows everything about everyone. He knows the beginning. Sorry, he knows the end from the beginning. Because of all these things, God has the moral right to intervene and act in human history just like a surgeon does. Since the author of life, since he knows everything, 
he has the moral right to intervene and to act in human history in ways that may be unpleasant, but they are there for the greater good. And principle number four, we're going to spend a bit more time. Place every story in the context of the great controversy. Every single challenging story that you find in the Old Testament, try to take that story and place it into the greater context, the greater battle that we know, the cosmic conflict, the great controversy. You see, my friend, the battles between Israel and other nations weren't just conflicts. In ancient Near East, a battle between two countries, it was a battle between their gods. And the nation that won meant they had a powerful God. And people are willing to consider and give a go to that type of worship. And what's fascinating is that there were many nations that have tried to destroy Israel in the Old Testament. Many nations that have tried to tempt them away from worshiping the true God. And the question is, why? Why do we have this history of Israel in the Bible? And we don't have a history of those indigenous people from South America. And we do not have a history, that is clear at least to me, of those living in, in China. Or those living in other parts of the world that are not specific in the Bible. Why do we have the Israelites? Why is there this focus on Israelites and battles and God clearing the way before them? I'd like to present to you a possible answer that places everything in, in the context of the battle between God and the devil. The story begins in Genesis chapter 22 verse 18. I've got some of these passages so we can quickly go and get to, to our point. Genesis 22 verse 18 says this. This is God speaking to Abraham. In your seed, I would like you to notice it's singular and not plural. God is saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Out of all the people on the earth, God chose Abraham because Abraham obeyed his voice. And Abraham made the, God made this promise to Abraham, your seed, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he was saying, you know, out of you, without giving too many details, God was saying to Abraham, out of you, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is going to bring solution to the problems will come and he will be a blessing to every single nation on this planet. He will be the solution to the problem of sin. This is, this is the promise given to Abraham. Now the question is, who is this seed? In Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, Paul looking back at this, at this prophecy, at this promise made to Abraham by God, wrote in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed, as you can see singular again, were the promise, promises made. He does not say, and to your seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So Paul helps us understand that when that promise was given to Abraham, it was the promise about the coming of the Messiah, and only the Messiah can be the solution to every single nation on this planet. 
the South Americans, the Mongolians, the Chinese, the Japanese, and everyone else in between. But he was going to come from Abraham. The solution was going to come through this nation that we call it Israel. And Jesus, unapologetically and very boldly, proclaimed the same truth to the woman at the well, a story that is found in John chapter 4. In verse 22, when Jesus was speaking to that lady at the well, the Samaritan, Jesus said to her, very unapologetically, but clear, he said, you worship what you do not know. Because people had mixed ideas about worship. Around the world, people have mixed ideas about worship. And he said, you do not know what you worship. But we know, this is Jesus saying, we know what we worship for salvation. And we may not like it, but this is the way it is. Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, the solution for every single nation under heaven comes through Abraham into Israel, what we call the Jews. There's no other solution. In Acts 4.12 it says there's no other name under heaven given to humanity in which people can find salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other truth. There is no other way. There is no other life. And we have this story from Genesis to Galatians to John saying the solution that will solve this mess, that will bring, that will bring freedom from sin and hope of eternal life, will come from Israel, descendants of Abraham. And if you, if you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, And this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because it was a fulfillment of that direct promise from Genesis. So here's the thing. I've created this background for a particular purpose. When the promise was given to Abraham that the Savior of the world will come through him and his nation, what would you do if you were the devil? What would you do if you were the devil? You would do your best to stop that from happening. You would focus your attention, your energy, your wisdom to stop Abraham from becoming a nation. You would stop Israel from continuing through history. You would either fight against them or deceive them into sin that they may move away from God. So that the promise of the Messiah may not be fulfilled. Why? So that the world can be lost and be his. That's why. Every single attack that we see in the Old Testament against Israel, against the Jews. It's an attack on God and His purpose to bring salvation. That's why every single time you have Israel fighting against another nation, it's actually God fighting against Satan for the purpose of making sure that Messiah will arrive on this earth. Because He will be a blessing to all the nations. Sometimes God acts like a surgeon, but please Place every story in the context of the great controversy. So I want to take you this morning to the passage that will help us apply these principles that we looked at. These four principles. If you have your Bibles, please open with me in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
And this is what I consider, in, in my opinion, one of those challenging passages, one of those passages that authors like Richard Dawkins extrapolate out of the Bible and says, because of this, God can be easily defined as a moral monster. So 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you are looking at 2 Samuel, you've gone too far. You need to go back. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we are going to read verses 1 to 3 and try to apply those principles that help us understand God's character and His actions. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 3. Samuel also said to Saul, Samuel was chosen by God to be a prophet. Saul was the first king uh, of Israel. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. Keep that name in mind. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them. Keep that in mind. Utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare anything. And just in case he didn't get it, Samuel goes on being very descriptive. But kill both men and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel, camel and donkey. And you, you have a superficial reading of this passage, and you wonder, okay, yeah, you may go to war and you may kill the soldiers, but why kill the children, the infants? Why kill the animals? Why, why destroy everything? Utterly destruction. Why? And this is one of the many passages that we have in the Old Testament. First of all, I'd like you to see that God is the one who commands the destruction of Amalek. It's n it is not Saul's initiative. And we said, because God is the author of life, He knows everything about everyone, He has the moral right to intervene and to act in human history. But then we are told, the reason in, in verse 2, it says, I will punish Amalek. The question is, why punish him? And God says, I'll tell you why I'll do it. For what he did to Israel, how Amalek ambushed Israel when they came out of Egypt. Here we have a reference to an event that took place 500 years prior to this action. God makes a reference to an event that took place 500 years prior to this action. So what, is, what was God referring to? God was referring to this promise that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19. And this is God speaking to Israel right after they left Egypt. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you are coming out of Egypt. Do you think Satan was happy that Israel was now free and ready to move on? His desire was to stop them from becoming a nation so that Messiah would never come. And Amalek was a nation used by Satan to attack God's people. Remember, every war was a battle between gods. How he met you on the way and attacked 
your rear ranks, all the stranglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Do you know what's sad? That Amalek, these guys, the Amalekites, they were relatives of the Israelites. They were descendants of Esau, those that are familiar with with, uh, Bible characters, I guess. Descendants of Esau, we call them distant cousins, but they were relatives, right? And God says, verse 19, Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And for 500 years, God postponed this verdict. For 500 years, God bore with the Amalekites. But as you read the history, you understand that the Amalekites continued to destroy or to attack Israel or continued to seduce them and attract them away from the true worship of God. Why? Because it was Satan's plan for Israel to be destroyed as a nation so that Messiah would never come. His main focus was here in this world. So 500 years, we get to Saul. And Saul gets this this privilege of fulfilling the prophecy. And he's sent into into this war where everyone is destroyed. And the Hebrew word for that is harem. And it actually represents a solemn and a holy battle for Israelites. What does it mean? Well, the soldiers were not to profit from their assignment through acquisitions of slaves or goods. It represented divine judgment upon a nation. And we can see it didn't just happen. God persevered with them for 500 years. There was no change. And there came a time for them to be removed, just like a surgeon removes what is bad in order to allow the body to survive, so that the blessing for all the nations may come. Place every single story in the context of the great controversy. Sadly, we've got King Saul. In verse 9, we are told what he did, First Samuel 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and oxen, and fatlings, and lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So God sends him to war and says, destroy everything and everyone. He comes back with the king alive, and who knows what else was alive, plus all the, the, the best of the cattle and the sheep, and you know, all of that stuff. In other words, he was disobedient, and we can go on a different tangent and talk about the compromise he allowed in his life, but that's a sermon for another Sabbath. But what's interesting is here, Saul was disobedient to God's command, and as a result of that, the kingdom was taken away from Saul, and the kingdom was taken away from his family. But because he was disobedient in destroying the Amalekites, the Israel as a nation had to suffer. If you fast forward with me into history, into the Israel history, you get to a time when a lady by the name of Esther ends up being a queen in the land of Persia. While the Israelites were still there, leftovers from the Babylonian captivity. Right? And while Queen Esther was reigning, there was a man that rose to some level of power and his main purpose was to do what? 
to destroy the Israelites. I want to share this passage with you from Esther chapter 3 verse 1 that talks about Haman's identity. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Where do we find this fellow? We found it in 1 Samuel, the very ones that Saul did not destroy. And advanced him and said he sit above the princes who were with him. This is a, an intentional reference to the tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites. He was a leftover, or his parents, you know, his ancestors were left unkilled by Saul. And as a result of that, they continued to chase Israelites. And in that story in the book of Esther, we know that Haman came with such a plan that he wanted to kill every single Jew. Because it was Satan's purpose to destroy the nation that the promise or the prophecy about Messiah may not be fulfilled. But God did not allow it to happen. But what I'm trying to say is that as you follow history, as you try to study, as you understand that sometimes God is required to act as a surgeon, and He placed every single story in the context of the great controversy. His ultimate purpose is to make the words from Genesis that He uttered to Abraham that your seed will become a blessing to all the nation. He's trying to make those words become a reality for the entire world. Yes, He removed the Amalekites then. For what purpose? To bring salvation to you and to me. If I were to tell you that I have a family member who has killed a man. If I were to tell you that I have a family member, and I do not have, but, but if I were to tell you I've got a family member that has killed a man. And then I ask you this question. Is this family member of mine a hero? A murderer? Is he a saint or a sinner? family member of mine has killed a person. Is he a hero? Is he a saint? Is he, you know, a, a, a murderer? Alan, right here, is saying it depends on the circumstances. If you were to think about my question, you would beg some, some answers to other questions. Questions like, was there an accident is your family is, is your is your family member a soldier is he a police officer was there was there a break-in was it in self-defense in other words what i'm trying to say is this killing without context doesn't make sense killing without a context tells us nothing and to charge that we believe in a God who kills is virtually meaningless when it's isolated from the context. That God acts like a surgeon for the greater good of humanity. That God places every single story in the context of the great controversy for the sole purpose of fulfilling the promise of the Messiah. Because the Bible says, For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as we finish this morning, I want to share this with you. The overall theme that emerges from our study is that God is a warrior. He's a warrior not against people, but against sin that hurts his people and hurts his creation. Every action of God, every command that he utters, including the command to destroy, to utterly destroy the Amalekites, is made in order to restore fallen humanity and to bring salvation a step closer to his final fulfillment. I want to leave you with this verse from Revelation 18, chapter 18, verse 1. And it says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. This states that at the end of, this, at the end of the world's history, the glory of God, the glory of his character will shine all throughout the world. That the last work entrusted to you and to me, the last work entrusted to Avondale Memorial Church, is to let God illuminate the world with his glory through us. And this will be the most powerful argument in favor of God's existence and love. And his true character will be defended. I came across this description of the last days made by Ellen White in her book, Christ's Object Lessons. And she writes, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. And that's exactly what's happening today. When we've got people accusing God of being a moral monster, men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. And people are turning their back to God or back on God. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. At what time? At this time, at a time when authors like Richard Dawkins publish his book entitled The God Delusion, accusing him to be a cosmic child abuser. And the list goes on. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. We need to help people understand the actions of God. Illuminating, but also saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory. The light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. That's you and me. We are called to be manifestations of his glory. In their own life and character are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. The greatest evidence 
for God's existence, for His ability to transform lives, for His mercy and love, is your life. It's my life. And that's what the angel in, in, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 is all about. It's allowing God to reveal, to disperse His glory through you and through you. So my friend, God is not a moral monster. He does act like a surgeon. But please, place every single story in the context of the great controversy. His desire to bring salvation to the world. And you and I are called to reveal His love and glory through our life and character. May, be, may this be the reason for our existence. May this be the reason of why we come together as a church. To reveal His love and His glory to those around us. May we all live Christ-centered, Spirit-filled lives for the purpose of revealing the glory of God. Amen.